Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Julia Lee, Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and your host for today's show. My guest today is Kimberly McKee, an Associate Professor in the School of Interdisciplinary Studies at Grand Valley State University. Her research focuses on transnational adoption from South Korea to the United States and representations of Asian Americans in popular culture. She is the author of Disrupting Kinship, Transnational Politics of Korean Adoption, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2019, and the co-editor of Degrees of Difference, Reflections of Women of Color on Graduate School, also published by the University of Illinois Press in 2020. She has published extensively in journals such as Adoption and Culture, Biography, and and Interdisciplinary Quarterly, Feminist Formation, and the Journal of Korean Studies, and in several critical anthologies, most notably Adoption and Discourses of Multiculturalism out of the University of Michigan Press, Our Voices, Our Histories, Asian American and Pacific Islander Women out of, the, out of New York University Press, A Companion to Korean American Studies out of Brill, and The Routledge Companion to Asian American Media. She has also produced public-facing scholarship and been interviewed extensively on the question of adoption. She's currently a Fulbright Scholar at Sogang University in Seoul. She's here today to talk about her new book, Adoption Fantasies, The Fetishization of Asian, of Asian Adoptees from Girlhood to Womanhood, published by the, by the Ohio State University Press this fall. Adoption Fantasies has two interrelated purposes. The first is to examine the widespread representation of Asian American female adoptees in U.S. culture and media between 1992 and 2015, arguing that a nexus of objectification made up of intersecting Orientalist, heteronormative, sexualized, and model minority discourses inform how these figures are imagined. The figure of the Asian adoptee, not unlike the figure of the refugee, is embedded in an affective economy in which their eternal gratitude and indebtedness is the coin of the realm. An adoption success is determined by the gratitude of the adoptee herself. Like many who study adoption, McKee views adoption through a lens that emphasizes it as an institutionalized and bureaucratized process for managing the movement of racialized children and less as an act of individual choice. But McKee doesn't stop there. In the first three chapters of Adoption Fantasies, McKee studies famous or infamous stories about Asian female adoption in popular television shows like Sex and the City and Modern Family, mainstream films like Sideways and Better Luck Tomorrow, as well as the case of Sunyi Previn, the adopted daughter of actress Mia Farrow and current wife of director Woody Allen. The second half of the book turns to the second purpose, to interrogate Asian America's own investment in adoption and how the figure of the adoptee doesn't necessarily fit into constructions of Asian American identity and community. Kimberly, welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself as a scholar. Could you share with us how you ended up in Asian American Studies and how you came to this project in particular? I don't think my journey to Asian American Studies is unlike so many other scholars of my generation and those who came before. I think for me, when I first kind of became familiar with Asian American studies as a field, as well as thinking about questions of Asian American identity and belonging. It was actually why I was an undergraduate student at George Washington University. Um, I 
ended up becoming an English minor because I took so many classes with Professor uh, Patty Chu at GW. And so because of that, it really sparked my interest in terms of how I came to think about Asian adoption studies within Asian American studies. It honestly, I can attribute that both to how I became engaged with the field of Korean adoption studies. So thinking back to 2007 and attending the first uh, International Korean Adoption Studies Symposium in Seoul. Um, and that was coincided with the International Korean Adoptee Association's gathering. And so being in a room with such path-breaking scholars such as Lena Myung, Kim Park Nelson, Tobias Hubenat, Alina Kim, Hosu Kim, and others um, was really how I began to kind of see where my own interest in Korean transnational adoption fit, as well as thinking about, well, where does our understanding of adoptee identity have a place in conversations around Asian American uh, belonging and the heterogeneity of kind of Asian America broadly. Um, but to go to kind of the end part of your question in terms of how I came to this project in particular, I first started thinking about um, representations of Asian adoptees in the U.S. public imaginary when I was in graduate school. I had been thinking about questions of uh, adoptees being seen as hypersexual subjects, um, not unlike their non-adopted Asian American women peers, but rather also wrestling with this idea of what does it mean though when white adopters, since the majority of Asian adoptees entered white families, are unfamiliar or lack the competencies to really want to confront and engage and have those conversations. This isn't to say that your Asian American parents are having these conversations with their Asian American daughters, because, you know, uh, based on my understanding, I don't think a lot of that had been happening historically as well, but rather when you're racialized um, and you're coming through and kind of being socialized into cultural whiteness, how does that get layered differently, right? So how does this get layered when thinking about the consumptive practices of adoption or when you're mistaken erroneously as your father or brother or uncle or some male family member's um, girlfriend or wife? Um, and so that's really kind of where I started thinking about this and I was, very much interested in thinking about SUNY Previn. Um, and so my work on SUNY Previn uh, started when I finished um, my PhD and kind of while I was a postdoc and then throughout the last, goodness, uh, decade or so. Yeah, so you you note throughout the book, you talk about how this is a personal topic for you, right? So, and I really appreciated that you talked about your own positionality, right? Vis-a-vis uh, -vis the adoption narratives that you're critiquing and analyzing. You also call the book a love letter to Asian American adopted women and girls. I think that's on the first page of the book. So scholarly monographs are not usually called love letters, right? Um, and I was just wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. And is there a part of the book, any part of the book or all, maybe the entire book that you feel really captures that feeling? For me, this is a love letter to other Asian adopted women and girls because this is the book that writes those experiences into existence, those conversations that we've had with one another, um, not necessarily in hallways and stuff like that, but really those conversations that we have uh, when we come into the adoptee community, when we're 
talking with her friends, when we're thinking about what does it look like as our relationships with our families change and evolve, or as we gain elder care responsibilities, um, what does this look like when we start articulating those truths? Um, and what does it mean when folks within our families don't acknowledge uh, what this looks like? I don't think I could have written this book without talking about my own experiences or interspersing them throughout the text because it wouldn't feel um, it wouldn't feel truthful. It wouldn't feel honest. Um, so long, so so much of it uh, historically, studies on adoption tend to attempt to be quote unquote be objective, even though we recognize right that there's no objective truth when we're talking about scholarship and research, et cetera. Um, but so much ha has resulted in adoptees kind of being studied versus thinking about how our adoptees engaged in this broader discourse and being part of the conversation. And I wanted to write a book that was accessible to both academic and non-academic audiences. And um, the responses that I've received from uh, Asian adopted women and just other um, adoptees or adoption adjacent folks has been really profound in terms of thinking about the broader impact of this book, um, which is why I call it my love letter, because I want folks to feel seen. The book may not speak to everybody's experience, but I, my hope is that there's going to be a nugget of, of truth that when you're reading it, you're like, oh, wow, I've experienced that. I'm not alone. I'm part of this broader, um, more beautiful conversation. And that leads to more different people sharing all their experiences, right? Sort of that, that I think that's a huge, I mean, I could definitely, I definitely sense that as I was reading, you know, myself, like, first of all, you know, my sort of lack of awareness about um, cultural representations of adoption, right? And then of transracial adoption, Korean adoption, which your book really highlights, um, but I, I did get that sense that this is, you're writing for a particular community, right? You're writing, it isn't a scholarly book in the kind of conventional sense. Um, and that was really powerful. So one of the phrases you use to describe your book is you say, I think I, I'm paraphrasing it. Um, you describe what you call the life cycle of the of the Asian American female adoptee, right? As she goes from child to teenager to adult. And so my next question is, really basic, but I think it's really crucial. So why does the figure of the Asian American female adoptee have such a hold? How, why does she show up in these places, right? Why is she so prevalent in the American cultural consciousness? So what is it about how she embodies race or gender or sexuality or childhood or nationality, whatever identity marker that you want to put in there? that makes her so visible and at the same time obscured in American culture? Well, when we are thinking about the life cycle and why I frame it this way, and this is also why if you're reading, when you read the book, you're like, well, why does she jump around time periods, right? So it doesn't necessarily go linearly. It's because when we think about how adoption from Asia first came into the American consciousness, it's very much through th this uh, humanitarian child-saving desire, where you're looking at, quote unquote, pitiful orphans, you're looking at sponsorship ads, you're being um, compelled to look and to, to consume these images because you want to feel better about yourself, right? Um, you know, this is why those advertisements worked then, right? This is why the newsreels of Harry Holt and um, other 
adoption agency folks holding infants pulled at American heartstrings um, because you just wanted to rescue kids. I mean, this is also why even in contemporary periods, when you see disaster happen, uh, Americans, as well as people from other nations, want to adopt these children versus doing anything else, right? Um, and so because of that, when I start my conversation in the book to think about um, the adoption of infants and how um, pervasive myths of child rescue um circulate, I think a lot about the work of both uh, Erica Kanasaka as well as Sujin Pate, uh, who both talk about the way Oriental dolls um, held the U.S. imaginary. So thinking about those friendship dolls, thinking about how adoptees um, kind of had that doll um, persona mapped onto their bodies. And so this isn't just talking about sort of post-Korean War war orphans. You see this in, in research and literature done by Chinese adoption studies scholars talking to adoptive parents of Chinese children where they're invoking terms like China doll. And so there's something about this idea that you can have your own little Asian baby as if, you know, it were cabbage patch dolls. Um, to dress up and to make yours. And you can map onto her your own desires and your own interests in ways that I think that while some fantasies are also projected onto Asian American and Asian women uh, when they enter sort of teen years and adulthood in kind of a more of a sexualized, hypersexual, fetishized way, it's different when you can do that to your own children to mold them into the people that you think they should be. And so this is where I we see how um, discourses around gratitude um, and assumptions of gratitude come into play. That's really, I mean, while you were talking, I was reminded, I've seen it on social media, maybe you have too. There's a video of a little uh, Asian girl and um, the video is, she's adorable. Um, and she's talking about how her heart felt when she saw her adoptive mother for the first time. And you hear the mother, the adoptive mother's voice, but you don't see her. And she's performing like my heart, I fell in love with you the minute I saw you. And and she, I mean, she's, the comments are very interesting on those videos, right? That, oh, she's so, you know, she's so adorable. I mean, you know, typical stuff, but she's so articulate. She knew exactly, you know, she knows exactly what she, um, she knew exactly. Like there's this kind of weird discourse of like, oh, she, there's no recognition that it might be, you know, there's a performative aspect of it or that we're responding to the performative aspect of it. Um, so what you're saying is really, is really resonating right now. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, the text selection. Like, so you talk about really a lot of items from popular culture, unlike most scholarly books. I think most people reading these books will have either seen the TV shows or seen the movies or have heard of, read about Sunni Previn. Um, and so I wanted to just ask you about that. Like, did, how did you make the decision, um, to choose the works that you did and why in particular popular culture? My focus is on pop popular culture because as much as I think sometimes people want to want or believe scholars should focus on either highbrow culture or that perhaps kind of this middlebrow culture doesn't have a lot to offer, the, these middlebrow cultural productions are what sh are what's shaping sort of broader perceptions of adoption in society at large. And to ignore those risks alighting um, how these this some of the intellectual discourse that in conversations that we're having kind of get disseminated um, through uh, broader cu cultural opinion um, 
And for me, I, I actually trace this back to thinking about the blind side. So I'm sure many people are familiar with what has happened in real life this fall between the two E's and Michael Orr. But why I mentioned the blind side is because as I was completing the manuscript, I remember reading as Netflix was shuttering its DVD business that the blind side was the number one um, scene or rented. I don't know. How would you explain it on Netflix? But film from Netflix. So I think about that a lot because the blindside traffics and all of these, you know, racialized and racist tropes about a white woman saving a, a black teenage boy and what that looks like and 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 thinking about how powerful that narrative is. You know, the other times we see that kind of in television or in films like Losing Isaiah, which I know is much older, um, but I'm always reminded of that film as well when we start thinking about discourses around uh, child rescue and adoption. And I realized that um, Orr was never formally adopted by the Tuies, but that narrative around him and his body and his family was very much rooted in the same kinds of narratives that we see when uh, scholars are looking at what happened with the Hart family and Devante Hart um, and in the death of him and his siblings at the hands of their um, adopted parents, right? And so Dorothy Roberts references the Hearts in her new book, Torn Apart. Uh, Catherine Mariner writes about the, the kind of that viral image of Devante Hart hugging that police officer um, in relation to thinking about questions of adoption in her book, Contingent Kinship. And so we have to have these conversations to understand, well, why do these messages have such a hold? And where are everyday Americans getting their understandings of adoption? It's through watching things like Modern Family. It's through consuming shows like Sex and the City, and then it's reboot. It's thinking about how what happens when adoption isn't necessarily in the forefront of the storyline, but also is just kind of pervasive um, and, and percolating in the background. Well, what does this mean and what does this signify? And so for me, when I think about where people are understanding what adoption is doing within society in terms of demands for adoption, adoptee gratitude, you have to look at media. You have to look at how are people consuming this? And I think a lot too about um, just as a field of Asian American studies, and I say this in the in, in the book, is thinking about if Asian adoptees have always been used kind of as vehicles to explore identity um, and as vehicles to explore kind of the limits of Asian American identity um, and what does it mean to be approximates, then we have to have those conversations. I start off one of the chapters in the book thinking about David Chang and Ugly Delicious, where he makes kind of, um, he, ma he makes this terrible joke at the expense of adoptees, right? And so what does that mean when we see Asian Americans doing that or specifically Korean Americans, right? Um, because it's not like adoptees aren't doing things or aren't kind of engaged in conversations about identity or that we're not Asian Americans because we are. Um, and so by unpacking some of these examples and really highlighting the damage of some of these representations, my hope is that we're also seeing kind of a shift in how we're seeing adoptees being represented in media. Um, and I and I think we are. I don't think it's been a huge shift necessarily, um, but I think we're seeing the needle move, and I, I'm hoping that we continue to see that happen. No, I do want to return to that conversation because it's a really um, you bring it up later. Um, I think in chapter four, 
right? When you talk about soul searching, and I want to I want to return to that because th this is actually what was really revolutionary or really eye opening for me was the idea of Asian American studies investments as well in the figure of the adoptee, right? And that really ugly moment that you talk about and analyze um, is, I think, you know, it's really, really rich. Um, I wanted to get into the to the first chapter, though, right? And so you start the book, the first chapter is focusing on um, the figure of the adopted daughter in two really famous shows, <laughs> Modern Family and Sex in the City. And Coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, both characters, both of the daughters are named Lily. Um, so we have Lily, who is adopted by Charlotte and Harry in Sex and the City um, from China. And then we have Lily, who is adopted from Vietnam by Mitch and Cam in Modern Family. So I'm sure most of our listeners have either, you know, seen, most likely seen both of the shows. Um, can you talk about the two Lilies and how they function within the sort of representational universes of their respective shows? So I focus um, in my analysis of both shows on uh, the first season of Modern Family to think about Lily as this infant who cannot speak, who's being spoken for. And then in terms of Sex and the City, I actually don't end up looking at the films, but I focus on how Lily arrived into the family and how adoption is understood and circulated because I'm, most interested in understanding the conditions that generate adoptive parents and their family's interests in the child um, and how they understand the race of that child. Um, and so this is why, um, and I, I was, I've been asked before, like, why don't I look at, other, you know, modern family in its entirety? Well, that's only one snippet. And I think too, that when both, uh, the adoptions of both lilies are taking place in American society and U.S. society. It really also is telling us when those seasons came out a lot about how adoption and Asian adoptees were understood in the U.S. imaginary at that particular time period. So thinking um, about it happening sort of almost a few years after um, peak adoption, uh, peak adoptions from China displacing uh, Korea as the number one sending country of adoptees to the United States. And so um, when I think about how these two Lilies are functioning in their respective shows, when we talk about Lily within Modern Family, you know, Doug Ishii does a really great job where he points out how um, it's, it's just an impossibility to even have uh, Lily being adopted into this family because of adoption regulations from Vietnam at the time in terms of... Um, uh, the the queer household in which she's when she enters into, and so when you start thinking about B Lily being adopted from Vietnam, what kind of recuperative strategy is happening there in terms of both understanding uh, the legacy of U.S. the U.S. war in Vietnam, right in the U.S. imaginary, but also to thinking about how it feels a little bit like lazy writing in terms of understanding really isn't Lily supposed to be a stand-in for all of these Chinese adoptees coming over right at that time? What's actually happening? Does her country of origin actually matter? Yeah. You know, is that mostly irrelevant when we actually think about what Lily's doing within the family as um, both a person of color and, and yet not? And what I think is very fascinating because I was just 
teaching um, about modern family within my class at Sogong this fall. Um, I'm teaching a class on American multiculturalism. And one of my students pointed out, you know, Lily doesn't speak, right? So we have all of these things being um, enacted upon her and thinking about what does this say more about um, whiteness and white perceptions of Asian culture. And, it, and that's what I'm interested in, right? It really gets into how both adoptive parent anxieties about are we culture keeping enough to borrow Heather Jacobson's term or are we um, not doing enough? What does it mean where we, we're talking about pandas signifying things or asking our Japanese American doctor pediatrician about pho? Um, and how can we then understanding about how Lily um, as well as just adoptees at large are like this repository for adoptive parents to feel both multicultural and cult cosmopolitan, but also have extreme anxieties that they're not messing up somehow, that they're not being overtly racist, even as they're not protecting that child from racism. Um, and so that brings me to thinking about the other Lily in Sex in the City and really understanding too, how are the conditions that Lily is being brought into the family very much classed and raced? Um, and so in my discussion of Sex in the City, I also uh, mentioned when Charlotte um, was interested in adopting a quote unquote Mandarin child with her first husband and her, what her mother-in-law says about how we're not going to, she doesn't like Mandarin food. She doesn't want to have a Mandarin baby. Um, and then thinking about Charlotte's preoccupation with uh, biological relatedness and looking like their daughter or looking like their child um, in in kind of the, the last season of the show before Lily kind of uh, shows up and is in the last sort of scenes of Charlotte and Harry. And I think their adoption is functioning as a way to really get to our obsessions around motherhood and kinship to get us to think about belonging. And again, a, this idea of approximate in this approximate whiteness that Asian Americans hold in the U.S. imaginary. Um, at one point, you know, Charlotte talks about, oh, if, you know, we get a baby and they have brown hair, we have brown hair, you know, stuff like that, where it's like, mm, that's not really how that works, but like, okay, right? <laughs> you can, I, I suppose your hair color matching is, is one thing, but it's not really the same, right? So when we start having these conversations and thinking about what these infants are doing, these shows really just tell us about white anxieties about adoption, right? They're really speaking that into existence, but doing so in a way where it's not necessarily offending their white viewer. Right. They're doing so in a way that is brings comfort and kind of a reassurance that like, oh, yeah, no, this is this. I've experienced that. I've said these weird things. And whether or not even some of that registers as being racist, who knows? Right. But at least for adoptees, you know, I've talked to adoptees about other um shows that feature adoption storylines. So here I'm thinking about like, this is us. For many adoptees, adoptees aren't necessarily watching these television shows. Right. So it's really about how are these shows being received by non-adopted people or adoptive parents? And what are these shows telling them about adoption? And in both of these narratives, when we're talking about infants, it's wrapped up in these discourses of rescue. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, I, I you know, that question that you asked is 
does Lily from Modern Family, does her Vietnamese-ness even matter? Or is it just, you know, is it is this kind of, and I was thinking part of me was like, oh, I think they picked Vietnam because the show likes to make fun of the word pho a lot. Like there are a lot mm-hmm. of the, you know, and so it's licensed to laugh at, you know what I mean? Like in, 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 yes. in that kind of way, it's permission to laugh about that, I think. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just, anyway, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead, please go no, ahead. I was just going to say that, like, I think it is giving permission to make what many would describe as these microaggressive jokes, right? Or these race or these like racist uncle like jokes um, and, and feel okay about it, right? So when you think about the way food is invoked where Lily is called like a little pot sticker and stuff like that, um, you know, I'm sure if you ask a room full of adoptees, somebody has heard some variation of some bizarre food joke in their right. lifetime. Right, right. No, that's really good. Um, so your third chapter, right, you focus on Sunyi Previn, um, who's taken from Korea by Mia Farrow and her then husband, Andre Previn, in 1978. So I think most people are at least familiar with the outline of this story, right, um, which first emerged in the early 90s, I think, um, in the 90s, and is still being scrutinized. There was a documentary that was released in the last couple of years that you that you talk about, Um so I was just really struck in reading your analysis of um, the way Sunyi is represented, right? As a nymphette, um, someone who stole her mother's boyfriend. She's a victim or a perpetrator of incest. You know, she's mentally disabled or um, intellectually disabled. Um, how quickly that experience faded into the background as uh, Pharaoh, right, as Mia Pharaoh then accused Alan of the sexual abuse of their white adopted child, Dylan, right? So no accusation against um, Alan about the sexual abuse of Previn, right? Um, but for the protection, right, of the white child, Dylan. So, you know, can you talk about um, the protections that Previn was accorded by her adoptive mother or by society, right? Generally speaking, and why there wasn't what was what was the response to her about, and why wasn't there this sense of outrage, um, even to this day? You know, people saying, "Oh, well, Alan wasn't really her father," and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk about the response to that? I think a lot of this has to do in terms of the uneven unevenness of response between what happened. Uh, in regard with Dylan, as well as thinking about Sunyi, has to do with age, um, right? So Dylan was quite young um, when the accusations of molestation um, came uh, came to light. I also think too that the way in which, so not only Sunyi's age, but also her relationship with her mother at the time really framed that, um, as well as how racial difference is functioning here. Um, so I'm really mindful of how Alan supporters have both historically and uh, presently have used how he wasn't really your father, you know, he wasn't really involved, all of these kinds of things. And I'm always left with thinking about how is Alan's involvement any different from any biological father who may or may not be fully in the picture all the time? And yet we wouldn't necessarily cast them as, oh, they're not like a father, especially when um, how Pharaoh has described Alan's presence, as well as if you watch the docu-series, how her children have discussed 
Alan's presence. Um, and thinking about anybody who's grown up in non-normative households, it feels very disingenuous to start being like, oh, this is X. And because of that, we're going to just pretend that none of these other things can get mapped on um, to, to understanding what is happening between Previn and Alan, especially when Previn has not been given many interviews or talked about this, nor do I think she should feel compelled to either. And I don't want to kind of elide her agency in any of this. But what I'm really mindful of is thinking about what happens just broadly when adoptees, so whether or not they're Asian adoptees or adoptees of color or not, speak out about um, sexual or physical abuse within their families, right? So thinking about how these families are seen as supposedly good families because they've been allegedly screened and vetted. Um, what happens when you see something like this and no protections are afforded to Sunyi, right? Um, there's a line in the docuseries that just sticks out to me where Pharaoh mentions that she's never brought home any, any man since then because she's afraid something like this would happen. And it just, it, it sticks, it's, it's a striking line. It's a very powerful line because it, there's so much to unpack there, right? There's so much to unpack um, and to really think about and to wrestle with um, because of how, of thinking about sort of predatory behavior. And so, you know, and because of that, I'm like, okay, so you believe that you, you, you say that and yet your actions towards Sunyi and the lack of protections afforded to her um, at a time when one would argue that she was most vulnerable, right? When we think about age gap um, and predatory behavior, especially in a post Me Too era, you know, what's actually happening and what's going on there. And so I think for many, when I've talked to other adoptees um, who, who, depending on sort of your age, are familiar with Suni Previn and kind of what happened, I think what's the most striking is kind of the lack of protections afforded to her and how she was immediately cast kind of as, as a girlfriend or as like a scheming lover, Um when, you know, she was like 19, 18, 19. And, you know, I think about how people have recast and rethought about, say, Monica Lewinsky, for instance, right? When, 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 as time passed, as society kind of has moved on, and we think about how young these women are and how much older these men are, and we have to start having conversations about discourses of power and the operationalization of power in these relationships and what that looks like. So, like, if people are reevaluating Woody Allen and his uh, career in light of um, – the accusations made by Dylan Farrow, right, that kind of resurfaced after he won the Cecil B. DeMille uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. Like, what does that look like if we're also not sc having scrutiny about this other thing, too? Like, so thinking about Sunni, like, why does one get a pass and one doesn't? Um, where is that line being drawn for people? And I, I attribute that to the way in which we understand Asian American women's sexuality. And Sunni uh, makes visible right the ways our bodies shift where when Sunni was initially adopted and you see this in the tapes that I think uh I don't agree that Pharaoh should have like played um personal homemade videos within the docuseries talking where Sunni is reflecting about her birth mother that feels like a huge violation of privacy to me as an adopted person let alone as a scholar or even as a parent but 
you you see how Sunni and Pharaoh, how Pharaoh is trying to frame her relationship with Sunni there. And yet, you know, fast forward, all of a sudden Sunni is kind of persona non grata and um, expelled from the family. And what does that mean? And how do, how I'm very much attentive to like how other adoptees are consuming that and thinking about that. Um, because we know that line is so fragile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your your response is making me think two things. I think I read, you either mentioned or I read elsewhere that her her adoptive father, Andre Previn, also cut her out of his life um, when, when this all happened. He said something like, she's dead to me now or something horrible, like really, really <laughs> devastating. Um, and then I was thinking too, um, you know, uh, you talk about this in the book, how Pharaoh talks about the period um, when um, Previn was having a sexual relationship with Alan, but before she'd found out and she said, I could look back and I could see the, you know, that she was holding it over me, that she, she, there was a change in her behavior because she, as if they were competitors, right? That, um, that she knew she'd beaten me. And so it, it changed how she behaved. Um, and I'm just really struck that you know that that's how she would describe her child, um, who was maybe a high school student, maybe a college freshman, or whenever when when the when the relationship and I'm putting relationship in quotes started. Um, so yeah, I'm just really struck by I was really struck by your analysis. Um, I haven't seen the docu series, and my memory of the case is very much from like the scandal over you know the divorce and then. Um, the nude pictures, like there was a lot of emphasis on the nude pictures that Pharaoh found of her daughter. Um, and so, yeah, it was really, it was really powerful to read and also really like striking the lack of protection, the lack of any kind of care around uh, Previn um, as a daughter, you know, as a young person. Well, and somebody, as I was working on this, mentioned too, in terms of like Ronan Pharaoh, um, his work on sort of Harvey Weinstein. Right. And so when you think about that and then you think about what what has happened within the family. And so for the uninitiated Ronan Farrow, uh, niece Satchel, Satchel Farrow, right, that was the name that he was kind of given um, initially before he changed it to Ronan, um, is, is thought to be uh, Mia Farrow's uh, son with Woody Allen. However, Farrow has then since cast doubt and kind of implied that potentially his father could be Frank Sinatra. I don't know. Um, and so when we think about all of this and kind of the tangled web of understanding kinship and family, it really, again, you can't help but think, where is the role of kind of racialized sexuality? How is that informing people's understandings of Sunni and whether or not she is seen or she's deserving of um, us kind of rethinking what happened? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say at this moment, no, like there doesn't seem to be any consensus towards that, right? That we need to rethink how that narrative played out back then. Um, uh, so I I just wanted to um, ask you, so I noted earlier when you brought up that conversation, right? Um, uh, David, is it David Chang, right? The the joke that he makes about, about Korean adoptees. Um, and I said in my introduction where I describe your book, right? That part of what you're doing is um, arguing that it isn't just white America <laughs> that has this adoption fantasy, right? It's also Asian America that has this adoption fantasy. That we have 
Asian America has this very problematic, in fact, investment um, in the figure of the Asian adoptee, of the Asian American adoptee. So can you elaborate on the nature of that investment? Like where, what, what is the nature of that? For some, I believe that investment within understanding Asian adoption is both thinking about how adoptees are a vehicle to explore racial self-loathing, um, as well as what does it mean to sort of be Asian, but not, right? So thinking about this approximateness, which I find funny, right? When we understand kind of what Asian American studies is doing, thinking about both the heterogeneity and the hybridity of Asian America, as well as understanding uh, multiracial Asian Americans, right? And so what it, what are we actually doing then when we're calling into question um, kind of bizarre notions of authenticity, which I think for many in the field, we would also still be deconstructing and kind of taking apart and disentangling um, because we understand that authenticity also isn't, you know, necessarily possible and we recognize that right um but part of that has been also using adoptees as a way to talk about melancholia right because there's this presumption that adoptees are are always kind of engaged in this um in like existing um as these melancholic subjects which i heavily critique and push back against because i think that by just framing adoptees within sort of our understandings of melancholia and, and wanting to work through that as a concept that that fails to understand or think about both adoptee agency as well as the conditions of adoption, right? So the conditions of state violence, the conditions of the violence of love that Kit Myers talks about in terms of adoption, recognizing how um, loss um, is framed, and it's not that we're perpetually sad or perpetually kind of in a in a state of loss, but rather, you know, what are the what are, again? What are the conditions that are generating that for adoptees? Um, and now that I'm in uh, Korea on my Fulbright, and so I'm also in reunion with my uh, biological family, which I feel very fortunate about. We've been in reunion for the last decade. I was struck about. And I keep going back to this idea of melancholia because it's not that we're melancholic about adoption. When I think about melancholia, I think about what it means to have feelings lost in translation, not ever be able to recuperate that relationship because I will never be able to communicate fully with my appa when we're at dinner. And so that's where that sadness is, right? The sadness is about the loss of being able to do some of the most mundane daily things so it's not about necessarily kind of um, these other forms of sadness or loss or that we're missing a piece of ourselves or that we're never whole. And I think that's the piece um, that people tend to fixate on when they're looking at adoptees that like, oh, somehow we're not whole. No, we're whole. We're also just like wrestling with where kind of the losses of adoption are fitting in our broader uh, realities, right? So it's, you know, I think about how I once was in a screening for one of Diane Borchet Lim's films in the matter of Cha Jung Hee. And I remember an audience member during Q&A asked her like, well, do you feel whole now? And it's like, it's well, yeah, right. So it's a, that cringe moment, but it's also like, you know, the losses, you can never recuperate the losses. We're all whole, well, how we're, 
confronting those losses might look differently. There's no kind of linear path for adoptees, which is why I think the adoptee consciousness model that came out uh, within the last year or two is really helpful to sort of think about where adoptees are in that journey. And so we have to push back against these Asian American fantasies that want to use adoptees as a, as a way to explore again, this potential racial self-loathing or the limits of identity, because that's not what it, what it is. We're not some like cool trope that you can just enact all of these things about um, because you, you want to find, you, because you think adoption is the only vehicle to do so. Like, no, let's make more rounded out three-dimensional characters. Um, or I think about, um, and I hope it's not considered a spoiler. Uh, I think about Joyride right, as a film. And I think about um, the interaction that Audrey, the character of Audrey is having uh, when she's in China with the Chinese businessman playing by Ronnie Chang, where he's like, well, don't you want to know where you're, you, you're from? And like this idea of like origin story, which um, I think presupposes that all adoptees need to have a particular narrative. This isn't to say that adoptees don't want to learn more about their, their um, birth countries, but, you know, to assume that all adoptees want to, you know, that's not necessarily where everybody is on their journey. And so I really want to honor that as well. Right. And so I think we have to be able to have multiple conversations and hold things in tension with one another. And so to just say that, oh, adoptees are chronically melancholic or that melancholia is the only way we can understand the traumas of adoption, I think we can just do better. Yeah. That is super, I mean, that's really powerful, I think, right? The way in which the adoptee becomes just the figure of loss, like constant loss, right? Yeah. Um, or absence, right? And um, when you brought up the story, you know, the sense of sadness you feel when you're talking, you know, when you're talking to your father in Korea, or when you're having a meal with him, it's a, a question of translation, right? As opposed to a sense of like existential, like there, I, I don't know that, that when, when you were mentioning that story, that's what I was thinking of is like, that's a trend, that's a translation trope, right. Um, as opposed to this kind of idea. And, uh, you know, you bring up that phrase approximate Asian, right. To talk about adoptees and the adoptee female figure, right. So the adoptee represents this kind of line of demarcation between Asian Americans and whiteness, right. And that line is of course an anxiety about Asian American identity as being approximated to whiteness, right? That Asian Americans are almost white, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the the figure of the adoptee takes on that burden, right? They can be that figure. Um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that in relation to the one of the films that you analyze in the book, which is titled Soul Searching, um, which includes a figure about an adoptee. So can you talk about um, that idea of approximate whiteness um, in relation to that film, in relation to soul searching. What's fascinating about soul searching, um, and I, I wish it was still on Netflix because I, I find the film to be um, an interesting text to really think through questions of uh, Asian American or Korean American anti-Blackness as well, um, in addition to understanding diaspora. But for me, the character of Chris Schultz in the film, because the film is set in the 1980s of high schoolers returning um, to, to Seoul to sort of learn more about Korea in this kind of overseas Korean um, construct, is that Korea in the 80s was not anticipating adoptees coming back to Korea. I mean, Korea in the 90s still wasn't, right? And so when you when you see that 
Um, and then when you read um, interviews with the director, you know, he's like, oh yeah, we didn't have an adoptee, but I thought having an adoptee would be a good idea sort of thing. Um, and, you know, it, it's useful to think about the anxieties that we have around um, what does it mean to be Korean American um, in terms of if everybody's kind of typecast in soul searching, similar to uh, the John Hughes films that the director was inspired by, Benson Lee, I think we see how then the adoptee becomes this repository for questions about whiteness, not knowing Korean, right? Because she doesn't have a Korean name. She So as she's practicing writing her name in her calligraphy class, she's like writing Chris Schultz over and over again, right? So she becomes this catch-all figure for somebody who I think for many second-gen Asian Americans who may not, who may have language loss, right? She's embodying those experiences while also embodying kind of this adoption narrative to then fit in a different subplot um, around adoption, birth search, and reunion, because it's as if she's doing that, she'll somehow achieve a quote unquote like wholeness around her own identity because she'll have that missing piece. Um, And, you know, I think too, if we're going to have conversations about kind of Asian Americans and understanding adoption and adoptees, we we have to think about why is it that we are always feeling bad for them, right? And I, I'm, to be honest, I'm personally reminded of this because I remember as a freshman year in college, this Chinese American guy, it, and it will stick with me, he told me he felt bad for me that my parents were white. And at the time I found I was so... I was so offended. I mean, just talk about being deeply offended when somebody's telling you that, right? And well, what does that mean? Like, why are we feeling bad? So in, instead of operating in this place of like, you feel bad as an Asian American who grew up with Asian American parents, like we need to have a different conversation. Like just because you feel bad, one, you don't have to tell the person that you feel bad for them. <laughs> Two, you know, instead of trying to then make it so then the adoptee must have this narrative and search for wholeness, which I think then gets to sort of these Asian American investments in adoption, right? And thinking and feelings of melancholia and loss, you know, let's turn that question around to say, well, what what does an adoptee then tell us about being Asian American? You know, how does the adoptee identity kind of add a richer layer of nuance, similar to when we start incorporating multiracial Asian Americans to these conversations. So if we're able to have kind of a critical mixed race studies conversation about Asian American identity, or even to thinking about a critical refugee studies conversation, why can't we then engage a critical adoption studies conversation to understand the complexities and nuances of Asian American identity? Why is adoption seen as kind of a flattened understanding of self versus something um, that is a rich analytic. Because one of the things that I argue and will continue to say is that if we use adoption as an analytic, we can learn so much more about settler colonialism, militarism, and anti-Blackness. But oftentimes people want to reduce adoptees um, as just an outcome of war or as a way to work through questions of loss and mourning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about, in in your discussion of that film, you talk about how many of the critics actually singled out that story of Chris Schultz, right? That that was the most, they they mentioned it in their review that that was the most moving part. 
So there is a desire to see that kind of resolution, right? To see that return to origin and she gets to have her big speech to her mother. Um, um, and then the kind of flip side of that is something like, well, I don't know if the flip side, but another side of that would be twinsters, right? Where you talk about, um, and that's in your your last chapter, you talk about this document, maybe you can explain it a little bit when you answer, um, but the aesthetic there is one of cuteness, right? The 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 kind of the ways that the the girls, um, the young women who are reunited, they're twins and they were separated, um, and are reunited, and the investment in that reunion, which is not unlike the investment in kind of seeing that origin story, right? That you're talking about with soul searching. Um, so how does how does the cuteness play in to to the adoption narrative there? For adoptees to do the work that they want to do in terms of highlighting adoption narratives to ensure that they're not going to be labeled kind of angry or what I describe as adoptee killjoys um, in my first book, it's, you have to play a certain role. You have to embody a certain kind of affect um, because that gives you greater legibility. And I think about when Twinsters came out in 2015 versus where we are now, um, as well, right? So thinking about, you know, has have things changed? But, you know, Twinsters follows um, the reunion of two twins um, who were adopted out and labeled as single births, um, which I think, you know, is a different conversation about the malfeasance and manufacturing of, or, of ad adoptee records, right? One was adopted to the United States, the other was adopted through France. They found each other via social media and YouTube. And so when we think about the reunion and what that means for the two of them and this and how we understand uh, both DNA testing as well as the truthfulness of records, Twinsters is able to raise some of these questions because it, it, they do this performative, cute aesthetic. Um, it, it's rendered palatable people are invested, but then it's also like in pinks and there's like animation and, and all those kinds of things. And so they're seen as more accessible, right? And that accessibility is key because even if, you know, I think that Twinsters, we could have pushed a little bit more here and there in the narrative. Like if you wanted to have a conversation about like, why are we really separating these kids and funneling them as single births? What's happening there? How is, the racial capitalist project of adoption functioning in making those choices, right? But that's not what the documentary is trying to do. And yet it does at least raise that question or it raises these kernels of truth throughout. And I, so thinking about when Sam talks, I believe it was Sam Fuderman talking about how she couldn't get access to her full file when she like opened it, right? I think she's only able to do that or only able to share that and still have this documentary received in such a kind of a positive, like, oh, look, twins, they're reunited sort of way because they're engaged in this particular acceptable adoptee affect. Um, adoptees still, you know, encounter pushback if they're disrupting these kinds of narratives. Um, and so for me to return it back to one of your earlier questions about why popular culture, it's really important to think about how something like Twinsters, which was released on Netflix versus being released in other kinds of platforms, is able to kind of make the claims it's doing um, on that particular platform for a wider streaming audience 
um, because it's adhering to certain kinds of tropes. So you think it's strategic then, or would you wouldn't I go? Think I, I would suggest that it was strategic uh-huh. um, and that, you know, one is savvy enough to think about how can we use the documentary as a tool um, for a, a broader release, right? Um, and so that's where I, that's how I read the film. Um, and, you know, it's a good film then to start teasing out some of those things. So if you were like, if I was to teach Twinsters, right, it offers an opportunity to be like, oh, let's, let's read a a particular scene against the grain. Like, what can we take out of it? And sometimes people won't, and that's fine too. But the film, I think, can serve multiple purposes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really true in something I haven't seen the doc. I haven't seen the film, but I've seen the trailers and clips, which definitely lean into the oh my god, this is so cool, and you know the kind of the the cute narrative, right? The the not only aesthetically, but also like this is they're just happy and they seem like you know they're so overjoyed to be with each other. Um, and so it's interesting that you don't question like why would siblings um, be separated? Um, why weren't they aware that they were one of you know that they were one of a twin? Um, and I think, you know, I think strategically, right, you ask those questions um, because, or the viewer is sort of like lulled into the sense of like, oh, this is a happy story, right? I can, I can get on board with this. They're going to, they're going to find a way to make it work between them. Um, and all the pain is gone now or something like that. Um, so last question, Adoption Fantasies was just published. I mean, it's, it's brand new. Um, and you're on a Fulbright in Korea right now, as as you mentioned. So what is the next step for you in terms of your research? And what can we look forward to reading from you in the future? Well, I should first say that this is a teaching Fulbright, which has been amazing. I have really enjoyed teaching the students at Sogang. Um, uh, it's It's been fantastic. Um, and, you know, also please note that none of my what I've been saying has anything to do with like Fulbright stuff, right? Like I'm not, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, right? But I think I'm speaking on behalf of myself and not the commission, et cetera. But I think um, when we're, when I'm reflecting about what, what I'm doing next, I'm doing a lot of sitting with what it's like to be in Korea. What is it like this time? So I've lived in Korea previously, you know, I visit, I've, you know, visited Korea um, pretty regularly since 2007, which I feel very privileged to be able to do so. Um, and so I'm taking a lot of time to reflect on questions of uh, motherhood and kinship. And um, what does that mean uh, living in Korea with my son? What does it mean engaging in kind of the most mundane activities like being able to go out to dinner with my appa? Um, what does it mean to take my son to Orenijib and go on field trips with him? And so when I start thinking about the loss and the sadness in the morning, it's mourning the fact that those are opportunities that I will never have with my own family, with my own birth family, right? So thinking about um, when we talk about adoption fantasies, I'm I'm really invested now in considering what are adoptee fantasies? What are the fantasies that adoptees hold? So Jenny Hedgen Wills addresses this in the preface of her memoir, Older Sister, Not Necessarily Related. Um, and Jenny's a Korean Canadian adoptee. And then Shannon Gibney, who's a mixed black 
U.S. domestic transracial adoptee in her memoir, The Girl I Am, I Was and Never Will Be, thinks through this in her speculative memoir about wormholes and time travel and what that looks like. And I think for me, it, it's about the stories that are ours, but that aren't ours. And how do our projections or what are adoptive fantasies? Is it just coming to Korea and finding birth parents? But then what about those next steps? What happens then um, when we're here, uh, when we're carving lives? And this isn't to say other people haven't written about this. So thinking about Jane Jong Tranka's second memoir, Fugitive Vis Visions, right? This isn't to say that, you know, I'm the first one doing this. I'm not. But I'm really interested in spending some time working through that and sifting through um, kind of how adoptees also internalized mainstream adoption fantasies and mainstream kind of like societal understandings of home and motherland. And then what does that mean when we're here? As well as thinking too, um, in the context of Korea, what does it mean when I'm starting to identify myself more as Gyopo versus Ibyang-in. So, so identify more as overseas Korean versus adoptee. Um, and how my use of that language has shifted too, um, due to both my reunion as well as having my son here, right? Because I wouldn't identify my son as adopt an adoptee because he's not adopted. I identify him as Gyopo. And so thinking about the layers and thinking about too, you know, yes, my Korean pronunciation probably and actually need, should be improved, but what does it mean too when I say I'm an Ibyang-in and people are unfamiliar with that term depending on the generation and Gyopo is more legible. Um, and so, you know, a friend of mine asked me, she was like, so do you think um, adoptees will just become a footnote in Korean history, right? So, you know, what happens when, the, the generational memory gets lost, even though Korea is still sending children for adoption. And so these are the questions that I'm kind of sitting with and wrestling with and thinking about while I'm here. Um, because, it, you know, adoptees are continuing to age. I mean, Korea has been sending kids abroad for like the last six, seven decades, right? Um, and, are, and are still so, right. So like, how are we reconciling that? How are we about to reconcile the, um, the number, the sheer numbers of Chinese adoptees in their 20, late twenties, thirties, um, that are going to be coming up. Right. And again, how are you, how are we addressing the other experiences of other transnational adoptees of color in this? Um, and so I think we need to start being more attentive. We need to start listening to adoptee voices, um, and so that's that's really what I've been focused on, um, as well as still thinking about how media representations circulate, right? So um, Shannon Gibney and I have looked at Little Fires Everywhere, both the book and the Hulu series, to understand and think about Asian American investments in adoption and how Asian Americans are talking about race with Celeste Ng, right? Or thinking about questions of adoption and joyride um, and how... Asian Americans receive that film versus how adoptees receive that film. And, you know, adoptees viewership, I would say was split in terms of how they understood the film and what the film is trying to do. Um, and what does that mean too, when we're at a moment in 2023 where there are Asian American adoptees 
who should be having seats at tables, having these conversations in terms of uh, um, representations of adoption and why we need to have more adoptee consultants on projects to ensure not that there's a single right way to do it, but that you're at least a, that you're moving towards not just saying in interviews, oh, well, we had, were inspired by our friends who were adopted, or I dated this girl and she was adopted and I wanted to write about adoption, right? I think we can just hold Asian American cultural producers to kind of a higher level, as well as just any person who's writing about adoption right now. Like if you're not adopted, why are you writing about adoption? What are your investments? Is this just like, oh, the, another ungrateful adoptee story? Or are you getting to the nuances and the layers and the complexities? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, 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 the, the, just whatever, it, whatever form it ends up taking, um, I think it'll be, I think it'll be amazing. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you so much, Kim, um, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you.